RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, it is Wednesday morning, time for our Legal Hub feature, and we're on one engine this morning. Uh, we're one engine down, Katie Ashby-Coppins, high-level meeting in uh, the, uh, the the political realm in Australia that she had to attend. She's doing great work, so we've got no problem with that. Uh, so Nick Kearney joins us. Gosh, she's up early doing the work. Nick Kearney joins us to talk some of the legal cases or the legal-related cases of the week. And Nick, um, flying solo, well, there's the two of us, so we're okay uh, this morning. Nice to have you uh, with us. Where are we going to start? I think we'll start uh, We'll start this morning with uh, a, a victory. Well, let's get off with um, uh, some good news. And, okay. and and the good news, it's good news on two fronts, I think. Firstly, because uh, a fellow freedom fighter has um, escaped punishment, if that's the way you can put it, in her uh, disciplinary tribunal hearing. And that is Sue Gray, uh, the lawyer. For, you know, everyone should know Sue Gray, or a lot of people on, on this um, station will know who Sue Gray is. So she's had a victory, and that victory should be um, celebrated, I suppose. But more importantly... I'm very, very pleased about what the disciplinary tribunal said about um, Sue's um, statements and and how they ruled in the manner. And, and it actually, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago about that poor teacher who had his own views. Uh, yes, they were uh, in his role as a teacher, I suppose, in the classroom. Uh, critically here, I think the difference here with Sue is that she was... Um, said to be, I guess, making her statements uh, as a as a private individual, not in her role as a lawyer, uh, but also potentially as what um, the judgment described as a political activist. Uh, and so, what happened here for uh, for listeners is that Sue made a number of Facebook posts, of course, over the uh, COVID period, criticised uh, you know the mandates and the vaccine and all that sort of stuff. And we know we know what. Um, don't have to go into that sort of detail, I suppose. Uh, some very um, concerned people, I, I guess you can call them that, uh, were aghast that a lawyer should be um, allowed to have an opinion contrary to uh, other people. So they complained, um, complained against her to the uh, Nelson, uh, Nelson branch, I suppose, of the Lawyers' Complaints Tribunal. Um, part of it, I forget the exact wording, but you the know, the standards committee, I think the they call themselves. Yeah, that's right, the standards committee of, uh, of course, Sue lives in Nelson, works in Nelson, so uh, that was the appropriate place where they should make their complaint. Uh, attached all their screenshots or something of Sue's Facebook posts, and you know, aghast that Sue should actually make uh, uh, make comments like she did in relation to the vaccine and the mandates and everything else to do with COVID. Um, the standards standards um, committee is the uh, first port of call uh, when lawyers are complained against, and I, I, I get, I, I think, I'm not 100 percent sure. It doesn't really matter for all, all intents and purposes. Uh, they bumped it. It ended up in the um, disciplinary tribunal in Wellington. In other words, the law society's kind of um, um, private, you know, court hearing to decide whether the uh, to decide whether you know Sue had had breached uh, any of her of the rules that lawyers must abide by when they're acting as lawyers, and the same things that you know I guess teachers have and doctors have as professionals. Um, and I don't have the exact I don't have the exact um, uh, 
statements or quotes that Sue made, uh, but the tribunal pretty much gave the complaint short shrift uh, and said that they, um, you know, firstly, firstly, Sue was not acting in, in her role uh, as a lawyer. She was acting as a private citizen and potentially a political activist, not as a lawyer. Uh, the complainants, uh, I think, tried to um, say that what well, doesn't really matter, you can't wear different hats. If you are a lawyer and you make, um, you know, you make comments or statements that you should be punished for, then you should be punished for them. Um, uh, and the the tribunal disagreed completely, and they made this they made this um, statement. Uh, but does a lawyer, in her personal and political capacity, asking questions or making statements which might be uncomfortable to hear, or with which many might disagree with? necessarily bring the profession into disrepute. And that was the complaint. She brought the profession, the legal profession, of which I'm a member, into disrepute. Uh, the alternative view, which we prefer, is that while there were some examples of her communications of which we disapproved and view as reflecting poorly on her judgment and appreciation of the position she holds as a member of the profession, uh, but not to the point of bringing the profession into disrepute, and in the end, we consider that freedom of expression must be jealously guarded and that lawyers within limits must not be not be fearful of saying unpopular things. If that were to occur, they might be dampened or restricted in their role in advancing the democratic rights uh, of their clients. So that's a very good statement, I think, and I'm pleased that they have um, made that uh, statement um, yeah, no, uh, yeah. Also, you know, Sue was, um, as I understand it, a trained scientist and has in her previous, in a previous occupation, been a public health inspector. So it wasn't that she yeah. didn't have any other knowledge as well. And just pointing that out. Yeah. And right at the start of the decision as well, which, again, I think is very pleasing uh, to see, uh, is it says that uh, the first paragraph, uh, they, they, um, they make a statement, the remedy for ill-conceived speech is more speech, not enforced silence. Well, uh, it's, it's reassuring, right? Very get, reassuring. To see that. Uh, lawyers, should have, should, lawyers should not have fewer rights to free speech than the average citizen, but they do have greater responsibilities in how they exercise them. So that's what, kind of what they said, which I don't think I would disagree with either of those statements uh, either. So Look, that's just um, something, you know, um, uh, I wanted to raise. Uh, I, of course, um, you know, during the COVID um, uh, period, we had uh, a lot of doctors who would make statements uh, against the efficacy uh, of the vaccine or otherwise, and they were modest, lost their licence, uh, were, you know, um, there were witch hunts against them and everything else. And, of course, other professionals um, as well. Um, and he, here's a lawyer standing up you know, um, a prominent lawyer uh, and the legal profession has upheld her right to make those statements, which is which is a good thing, very good thing. Could that, that finding there be any sort of precedent for, you mentioned the doctors, because there'll be a similar kind of um, configuration to what the doctors are, are facing and really the same kind of justice applies, doesn't it? Look, possibly, but I think that the, the standards and the um 
if I want to use that word standards, but the responsibilities of professionals are different according to that profession. So I don't think you can use exactly the same uh, standards uh, for doctors as you can uh, uh, lawyers, perhaps in terms of matters like freedom of expression or speech, because lawyers over hundreds and hundreds of years have been the ones who, you know, would lead, you know, to go back into uh, history, um, they would lead, you know, marches against um, tyranny and marches and, and defend people and, you know, lead the fight against uh, civil uh, injustice and the power of the state and the king in England and all that sort of stuff. It was lawyers who tried to uphold citizens' rights. So, I think the uh, I think the role of a lawyer is is slightly different to perhaps an architect or a doctor or someone like that, right. engineer or someone yeah. Okay, but um, you know, saying things, um, and then having them linked with your professional sort of role, you know. Well, um, well, well, that's look, look, that's uh, funny. You, let's segue, uh, do a slight segue here, because um, the, you know, something just popped into my head and it's not on not on the agenda, but I saw during the week. And related to the question that you've just asked, I saw during the week that uh, Elon Musk has said on Twitter that uh, that he or Twitter will pay the legal fees of any employee who is censored or admonished by their employer for statements they make on Twitter that bring them into disrepute or bring the you know bring, cause them trouble or something like that. He said he wants to have Twitter as a an avenue or a modium, uh, medium, I should say, uh, for for freedom of speech and expression. And if you're an employee and your employer has a go at you for something you've said on Twitter, we'll defend you and we'll pay the legal costs. Wow. Now, okay. Well, yeah, exactly. I think you've got to be, I mean, look, you know, uh, that, that, you know if, goodness. But, that, well, that's, that, that, that sets the cat amongst the pigeons, doesn't it? Because if you are an employer, who wants to um, sort of lord it over an employee who might have said something, you know now that that defence will be funded potentially. Yeah, look, I mean, again, just on the topic, again, I read during the week uh, that there was uh, the case of a senior um, scientist in a council in the North Island somewhere. It might have been... Yeah, saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Made various statements on social media um, against the the Labor government uh, and... Um, and um, you know his his uh, ability to make to make those statements uh, on Twitter and Facebook or wherever else, and he didn't try to hide who he was. Uh, there were people who complained against him to the council uh, and said, "Look, he he is a senior servant of the council, should not be making public comments against the government of New Zealand." And basically, that was kicked into touch. Uh, and they, he said, "Look, he, he's, he's not bringing the council into disrepute. Uh, he's not he's not talking uh, wrongly or badly against the council or any other people in the council. It's more the government, and he has no he has no duty to the council in respect of comments he makes against the government." Interesting. Okay, well that's yeah. a, that's a good place to start. Let's get into yeah, sure. some of the other topics: allocation of election advertising spending. Okay. Yeah. So this look, this comes up every election um, period, and uh, when I say it comes up, we have a funny system, uh, and I think it's funny because I think it's actually um, fundamentally wrong, um, rather than funny. But we have a system in New Zealand where political parties, if they want to, for the purposes of the election, and we're in that period now, uh, ninety days out, I suppose, when they want to pay for 
um, election ads on TV and radio, uh, they are not allowed to spend their own money uh, when doing so. And, uh, you know, we'll, in, in a month or two's time, you know, we'll get the party political broadcast. We'll start to hear the radio ads on Radio New Zealand and other radio stations. Not me. Uh, I don't listen to them. No, no, no. <laughs> Good on you. And I won't uh, see them either because I don't watch them. No, no, sure enough, but I'm sure in the And past, if they come on social media, I'll turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure the, I'm, I'm sure in the past you've seen them. Yes, uh, I have. Yeah, yeah, a long exactly. time ago. Yeah, and we, and we are, we're not, we're not talking here about um, you know, TikTok ads or YouTube. We're talking about uh, uh, mainstream media, TVNZ, Radio New Zealand, News Talk Z, but any other radio um, channel uh, in New Zealand, public radio, I suppose, uh, not publicly funded, but public radio and public TV. You're not allowed, political parties are not allowed to spend their own money making their own ads. So what they have to do is they have to run off, uh, each year they go to the Broadcasting uh, Commission uh, and they uh, apply for, uh, the Broadcasting Commission has an allocation of money that they apply to the parties for the spending of those ads, and it's taxpayer money. Uh, and, uh, you know, this year, the Broadcasting Commission have allocated national and labour of the pool that's available, it might be $6 million in total or something, uh, whatever, they've allocated them 55% of that. Uh, and then you know, the other parties, your ACT, your Green, New Zealand First, perhaps, uh, get uh, others, uh, get get you know, the, the drip-fed drip uh, leftovers, I guess, so to speak. Now, there is a formula by which it's worked out, um, and it, some of the formula works out to the number of MPs you have in Parliament, the number of votes you got last time. So... 55% of National and Labour, does it represent 55% of MPs in the House? I, I don't think it does. I think we've got more than that. Uh, so goodness knows how they work it all out. There is, as I say, in the legislation, there's a uh, formula. Um, but let's say it's $6 million, National and Labour get, you know, 55% of that each, $1.4 million each or something like that, 1.5, 1.6 each. ACT might get 600000 New Zealand First get whatever, whatever. Well, every election you get um, minor parties who say, well, hang on a sec, uh, you know, uh, we're competing uh, at this election. We're a, a party. Uh, we've got candidates in, in 50 seats. You know, we, we think we can get one, two, three percent. You know, Democracy NZ, perhaps, for example, Matt King's party or um, Out, Outdoors Party, Freedom Party, whatever, whatever, Aotearoa, Legalised Cannabis Party, etc. We're a political party. You know, we should be allowed to have some of this money so we can have TV, TV and radio ads because. It's not fair that, you know, we can't compete, we can't buy, use our own money, and therefore we can't compete with the with the with basically the major parties. On no, that. you're going to get completely swallowed up. Um, you know, the, the, the differential in size and uh, and the frequency you can buy and the even the level of production standards, it, it's such an advantage for the incumbents. Yeah, and it's a chicken and egg situation. So it's you know the the broadcasting commission uh, says, and the and the legislation kind of backs it up. Says, well, we can only really give you money if you're in parliament and the people have supported you. Whereas these small minor parties are saying, but we can't get into parliament without sufficient notice being paid to us, and we get that notice and people paying attention to us by having radio and TV ads, which all the other parties have, right? Yeah. yeah. So and if we can't spend our own money in doing that, how are we meant to um, compete? But there's a monopoly here, uh, a monopoly that's funded by the taxpayer. Uh, and it, it's absolutely wrong. And anyway, some parties are a conglomerate, I suppose, or four of them, uh, New Zealand Outdoors and Freedom Party, 
and who else were there? Uh, he might have to pause it here for a minute, Paul. Um, so uh, anyway, Outdoors and Freedom Party, uh, Vision New Zealand, Freedom Freedoms New Zealand and the Aotearoa Legalised Cannabis Party, they took a case to the High Court uh, and they argued, look, between us, uh, the four of us, um, we think uh, in what we got last time and where our polling and what we've got, the polls are showing at the moment, we think we can get 5% of the vote between us. So between us, we should have allocated 5% of the money. And they applied for a judicial review in the High Court and they lost. So, um, wow, you know, this, okay. as I say, this happens every year. I think Boy, the of, system looks after itself, doesn't it? It, uh, it does. This happens every year. I think one of the years, Peter Dunn, you know, in his, in his United Party, um, he, he did the same thing. I think the Alliance has done it. I think, you know, Colin Craig might have tried. Um, maybe even Winston, I'm not sure. But it, look, good on them for trying. You have to. Um, the, the system is is wrong, to be honest. Um, incumbency is protected by taxpayer funding. And uh, that is just in a democracy where you should be, uh, look, I can't think of any logical or sensible reason why a political party, if they're competing for an election and they can raise money to buy a TV ad, that they shouldn't be allowed to buy a TV ad. Well, what it does, correct me if I'm wrong, for the major parties, what it does is it takes care of the broadcast part of the budget for your advertising. Everything else you've raised, I'm I'm picking, you can spend on the billboards. The pamphlets, yeah. yeah, yeah. The pamphlets, the social media. So basically all that does is it just gives you more budget to spend elsewhere. That's exactly what it does. Exactly what it does, yeah. Does. So and that's, you know, that's not necessarily fair at all. No, and I look, I and I, I'm unclear, and I, I don't know whether that broadcasting allocation has to be declared in your election spending or not. I, I'm just not sure. Uh, maybe it, maybe it doesn't. Well, if it uh, does, maybe that's not so bad. But um, yeah. if there's a threshold, but uh, but that's the way that it could be. And if it's like that, it's unfair. And 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 also. It's sort of money for jam for the broadcasters. Oh, it, it, it's money for jam. Because they'll, they'll charge it at full retail because they know yes, that they it'll be paid. So yes, there's no yes, doing yes. deals. There's no, no you can't being buy, hungry you, for the no, business. You, 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 can't buy, you can't get an agent to buy you some advertising space at a cut down rate for this. Absolutely not, no. And, and, and most of it will be prime time, as we know, Paul. It'll be 7 o'clock just after the news or so when everybody's watching, having dinner. Before you know the Muppets on 7 Sharp, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so look, it's fun. I've thought for many, many years. Um, we Look, when I was involved uh, in a political party here, we used to submit uh, when they looked at – every year political parties uh, put a submission into the Broadcasting Commission to say – how unfair the system is, um, and even even the incumbents think it's unfair, uh, but it requires political will to change the law. And why would turkeys vote for an early Christmas? Well, they never do, do no, they? No. Yeah. No. Okay, interesting. Right. Um, couple of um, stories that have just, or a story that broke just in the last day, though some of us are not surprised, possibly. And that is, and it seems like very uh, loosey goosey details so far. Let's call it the BlackRock deal. What have you got to say about that? And and where legally does it fit in? Well, at the moment, there might well be a black hole in the BlackRock deal because, um, you know, uh, for those who, don't, who haven't heard of BlackRock, and um, if you if you haven't, you might have been hiding under a rock yourself for the last year or three or five. 
But Black, BlackRock is the world's biggest uh, fund manager. I think its controls on last looks I did, is it $30 trillion or something? Um, it's huge. It's yeah, I think, massive. I think $30 trillion at, uh, They basically own everything, Nick. Yep, they do. They basically own everything. They have controlling uh, shareholdings in, uh, I think, most of the top 500 companies on the US Stock Exchange. Uh, they own most of our banks through backdoor uh, entities, I think, as well. Uh, you know, your ASB and BNZ, they're, they're fully controlled. Uh, well, you know, they are. I mean, BlackRock is an asset manager, so they have, you know, they they need a return for their investors, and they do that by buying investments in companies that they think, um, you know, obviously going to get that return. It turns, I mean, not that it turns out, it, it but. The, the problem, if that's the word, is they are absolutely ginormous. They are um, bigger than most I, th I think they have got, outside of America and China, in terms of their wealth and GDP production, I think the next biggest economy in the world is BlackRock. Yeah. So, so they are an enormous entity. Uh, they control a lot through shareholding and directorships. And now uh, they've just signed some sort of mysterious deal with... Um, the New Zealand government for for, for investment by them or their, or their fund into a renewable energy source in New Zealand. And the details are very, as I said in, in, in the introduction, um, you know, it's more like a bit of a black hole than a black rock at the minute because the details are very thin. Uh, the New Zealand government is not putting any of its own money into it. Uh, it does, this is renewable energy. Well, that, uh, rings, that rings alarm bells, number one, doesn't it? Well, the second, the second alarm bell is that if they thought that renewable energy in New Zealand, and, and I, I don't know much about renewable energy, but I know this has raised every election. I've heard some stat that we're already at 80 to 85% renewable. Or 80 well, that's hydro. Right? That's because we've got hydro dams. Hydro. Yeah, there we go. So yeah. to, to complete the circle and fill the, you know, get from 85 to 100, we need some significant investment, I, I suppose. We could build another dam financed by ourselves easily. Well, look. Uh, uh, we I used mean, to do uh, it all the time. Yeah. That, that, that's right. And not only, not only, you know, the government doesn't have to do it. We've got some fairly big uh, couple of funds in this country of our own now. Uh, one's called KiwiSaver. You know, one is called Government Superannuation Fund and another one's called ACC. Yeah. Right. So, so there are significant um, uh, enough money in, in either or three of those to, I would say, suggest uh, to invest in, renewable projects perhaps in New Zealand and, and that's what we should be doing um, in my view um, Well we've been doing it for for decades and decades anyway, it's nothing new No, it's nothing, 100% so, so therefore you have to ask why all of a sudden have we um, done a deal with BlackRock uh, for this and, and you know, um, the devil potentially might be in the detail if, if we ever see the detail <laughs> because you can guarantee, a bit like the Pfizer contract, it'll be kept pretty secret right? Um, yeah, well, yeah. they own, I think, Pfizer. About 30% of Pfizer or something. Or a good deal of it anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, if we ever get to see the detail, it will be interesting just to, to chew down on it and see exactly what it says. But uh, interesting as well that um, it's made very public, right? So um, the, the governments uh, are putting no money in. It, it actually is not investment um, you know that they're, they're not doing a PPP with them, or they're not. You know, it's just direct overseas foreign investment by a fund manager into New Zealand that the government has obviously front-footed, right? Um, 
could we extrapolate from this that we're broke? Well, well, we, well, well. I think, I think, I think we are. We need money desperately. I, I, I think we are, uh, and, and I think what uh, Grant Robertson uh, is is called the you know top SOE CEOs into his office for a couple of weeks ago is to break that story to them as well, that news to them as well, actually. So yes, but but on on that point, Paul, um, you know, like I'm thinking, um, why why is this announced? Now, how, how important is it now that we that we, the government has to front foot this right now before an election and announce it like it has? And if you remember, I think it was November, October last year. Uh, well, maybe it was then. Uh, I think it was then. Uh, anyway, of course, uh, when Jacinda Ardern was prime minister, uh, she went to New York and made a uh, a, a visit to BlackRock, and uh, and again she front footed it too. She obviously knew that it would come out in her diary notes or somebody would see it or find so out. So they're getting ahead of it. They're getting ahead of it. To, they're getting ahead of it to, uh, I guess, so that, you know, the people who, um, I guess, you and I and others, listeners, who are, are, are very concerned about the scope of, of BlackRock's involvement in this country um, don't get the opportunity to, to break the news or break the story or chatter behind the back because they front-footed it. Okay. Um, yeah, shouldn't something of that scale with an entity like third largest economy potentially in the world, let's say, mm -hmm. and the doubts that some of us have uh, about uh, entities like that, shouldn't this be something that's put to the people of New Zealand before you start going signing us away like this without anything, without any consultation, without any explanation of what it is? There's no detail here. I think you just said Megan Woods, you heard her. Um, uh, very recently, saying that you know, well, she didn't have any detail. Uh, you know, the money has not been kind of allocated. There's this sort of wishy-washy renewable energy, which I suppose satisfies the green types and everything. But I mean, this could be something that that has a very significant bearing on on our country's future, and we don't even know. No one's asked us. No one's put it to as a policy for an election. Nothing. Well, it was clearly done, clearly done, and and worked out over a last couple of years, very very secretly. And I would say that the uh, office of DPMC has has been involved in it. I, I mean, and I say that because for an overseas fund like that to invest in New Zealand, they need OAO consent. Right. right, and our one's right. particularly brutal and conservative, very conservative, right? Very, very. and it, by announcing this deal today, do we assume that consent's already been granted? Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't announce the deal if OAO consent had not been granted. Well, I think we can granted. assume that. Yeah, correct, correct. And this OAO consent application process would have started a year ago. Would have to have been for the size on the of quiet on. On the quiet, uh, about the time that I, I guess uh, Ardern was visiting BlackRock in New York. So they, that must be connect. That visit must be connected. Chances are that visit is connected to this. Uh, yeah, join the well, dock. come on, and and she left too. Join the dock at a particular at, time as well before this. I mean, you can't. You raised the point there that look, if you want to buy, if 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 you wanted to buy. Um, uh, a house in New Zealand, and you're an overseas person, you can't, right? Yeah. Unless you, Australian and Singapore residents are exempt, 
Uh, we've banned foreigners from buying. I, I've got some clients, American particular client, who wants to move here to live here. Great guy, going to bring lots of money here. He's going through uh, investor status too at the moment through immigration. To do that, he had to buy some assets. He bought uh, a couple of significant properties here in Auckland. I've been doing some work for him in that. He has been working on this for two years. It's been very difficult for him, but he's finally you know, ticked all the boxes and, and he's done it. Uh, anybody, I mean, we, we, you know, we make it very hard. We have done in the past. Uh, and look, I, I, I'm in favour of overseas investment. I really are, because the country needs capital from somewhere. That we, we, you know, we don't. Yeah, but we need to know how that fits in and what it's for, and does that change the shape of our country, our democracy, our financial system, all those things. Hundred percent. And um, you know, if, if it's not in conjunction or in partnership with the New Zealand government, well, who who is it in partnership or conjunction with? Is it just them on their own? You know, are they buying? Are they buying stakes in existing companies? And then are they going to control those and put the money? How is it going to be done? And the, the detail on this is going to be very interesting. As I say, at the moment, there is no detail. And I can only assume that because uh, they would have needed OAO consent for this, they've already got it. Um, it's well known that BlackRock is, has been buying up vast amounts of real estate in certain areas of the United States and um, around the world. Well, at least that's what I've read and heard people talking about. And I'm not the font of all knowledge, but here's a scenario. Okay, mass negative equity in the housing system in New Zealand comes about. Banks looking like they're going to lose huge money because remember they've only got ten percent of the cash to back it. Okay, mm. so what happens in that situation? Does BlackRock sweep in and buy up all the assets, save the banks? I mean, okay, it's a bit far fetched, but at the scale of them. These things can happen in a small country. So we've got to ask these questions. We've got to know. Well, we, we get very nervous here about, uh, very nervous indeed, about there's awful Chinese people wanting to come over here and build a road or a bridge for us and and, to and tolling it until they've got their investment back and then signing the road back to us so it can be ours. We get very, very hot under the collar about that, right? But it's kind um, of transparent, isn't it? Well, that's right. It's, tra it's transparent, right? You do it through a private-public partnership. Uh, it's all done through contracts. Uh, it's done through, t you know, government uh, signs off, government versus government, uh, all, all transparent and above board. Th this here, uh, yeah, it's just come out of the blue, to be honest. You get it in the in the, in the, in the headline, and I just go, wow, what the hell is and this? And BlackRock's not buying our milk powder. No, correct, yeah, right. Or our, or our beef or our lamb. Mm. And we kind of know... Yeah, I mean it's not ideal. The world isn't isn't ideal, but boy, this um this will be ringing alarm bells, and and you know should they should should they not at a political sort of um, consciousness level be aware that there are many people out there who are very suspicious of this, the WEF. They seem to put it in our damn faces all the time. Well, yes, but this this has happened under a. Uh, under a Labour government, right? Yeah. Now, if this had happened uh, after October and National and Akron government, can you imagine the who and the cry? Uh, I mean, you know, this is what really strikes me uh, in this country uh, is, remember, if you remember when um, Jacinda Ardern was planning her wedding, 
uh, well, she had booked out uh, this luxury lodge, I think it was in, was it Gisborne? Uh, owned by a billionaire uh, in America who uh, who was the, one of New York's biggest property capitalists. Here we and go. He owned, <laughs> and he owned, this, he owned this massive lodge in Gisborne where he'd invited Ardern to have her wedding. Okay? Uh, absolute extravagance, right? I mean, absolute total uh, extravagance. This guy was a you know a, a property magnate, capitalist, uh, etc. Might have been a Democrat, I don't know. Uh, but th- th- this is happening under a party that supposedly uh, is envious of people's uh, of wealth like this. Uh, wants to tax everybody out of existence um, who, who own it, who own it. And yet here they are um, signing up to potentially the biggest one of the biggest uh, financial entities the world... uh, Their supporters would have no clue who BlackRock is. This is the the thing. Probably not, yeah. Because they watch, you know, they're kind of in the brainwash zone. They don't know. And then if you try to tell them, they would say, oh, no, that would never happen. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, exactly. You've been doing your own research again. So uh, this is why they can get away with it. Well, my answer to that always, and this is I, I like playing this um, when people say that to me, I say, well, one, it's not a conspiracy because it's quite overt, and two, it's not a theory because it's backed. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. So interesting. Look, it's a watch the space with that one. And I, well, I well, what's know, the legal angle though? Any legal angles? You're talking about the um, the hoops to jump through to get in here. I guess those are the legal. Yeah, at the moment, I just wanted to raise it because I'd say it was a, uh, in terms of, you know, this is a legal show, the legal angle I think will be, um, you know, the um, Overseas Investments um, Office consent. How was that handled? How was it done? Um, and, you know, what what did, what shape did it take? And, and, you know, when did it start? And et cetera, et cetera. That's, that for me would be interesting. And would that information be obtainable through the official information? I mean, because you can't get the Pfizer contract, can you? They can't get that. Uh, look, it would. I, I would hope that it would be, but of course, we know that that there are all sorts of exemptions that they that the ministers or ministries or ministers use around protecting state secrets and confidentiality and commercial sensitivity and blah blah blah. So, yeah, I mean, someone could could um, and, you know press further on it and see what see what they've got. And who's to say if we can't afford to upgrade the water and the co-governance of the three waters goes through, that BlackRock won't step in, fund all that, and then own all the infrastructure? I mean, okay. we've got to think of these things. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's move on to, and uh, this is of interest to me because I've kind of been following it, and I've had a pretty good conversation with Julian Batchelor of Stop Co-Governance New Zealand on this program. And um, so he's been... And this kind of reminds me of when the uh, Brethrens were putting out pamphlets um, when Don Brash was, I think, leader of the National Party that caused a stir. Yeah. Uh, he's been putting out pamphlets, and he hasn't been secretive about that. I think it's been very upfront, and people have known that he's been going around the country on tours. It's been attracting, well, crowds and also protesters. So what's up with uh, – I see you've used the words uh, witch hunt uh, with Julian yeah. Batchelor. Yeah, I mean, um, kind of, but also I think there's an interesting aspect here in terms of the words that uh, he used in this pamphlet, uh, and and the interpretation that that those words were given by you know the usual suspects. Um, I mean, he he did a horrible thing, 
Uh, and nobody, you know, how, it's outrageous that somebody should be able to prepare a pamphlet uh, and and uh, try and persuade people in an election year to consider an issue uh, and then distribute it throughout New Zealand. So it's uh, the election bit that's the problem. Yeah, I, I think, it, I, well, there's two problems with it. So uh, in terms of a legal um, position, you no, nobody is, is allowed to, uh, nobody is, is, is permitted during the election period, which is 90 days before an election, we're in that now, to distribute material with the, I'm sorry, with the intent, but uh, to encourage or to dissuade people from voting or not voting for a particular party or person. Now, yeah, that might seem a bit ridiculous because people go onto social media and say, I'm not fighting for bloody act. Does that, you know, does that persuade someone else not to or whatever? I don't know. But that's not, it's not, the law is not designed for that. Um, uh, it's designed for, as you say, the, the, the brethren and and the likes of, obviously, as Julian Batchelor has now found out uh, himself, where he you know, distributed, made and distributed 350,000 pamphlets uh, and put them around the country. Uh, and in it, he uh, basically tried to say people should not vote for parties that are in favour of co-governance. So he didn't single any particular party out. It's just more of a category of parties. Uh, a category, I think. Um, uh, didn't say like, don't vote Labour, don't vote National. He didn't say that specifically. No, I think I didn't. I think it says here, just reading a summary of what he wrote: don't vote for parties which support co-governance. That's kind okay. of what he wrote. I think, and I don't know whether it. Um, I haven't seen the pamphlet word for word what it says. Uh, you, now that's been looked at by the Electoral Commission because uh, if you write something like that, three hundred and fifty thousand pamphlets. You're meant to authorise it and put your name on it and say this is all, this is an election advertisement authorised by Julian Batchelor of. But he's not whatever. standing for election. No, he's not. But he's called what's called a third party. Uh, okay. You see, and third parties are not meant. To, uh, he, he, look, he's head of an organisation. I uh, what's his organisation? Is it? Is it I, I think know, it is Stop Co-Governance. Stop Co-Governance, yeah. Called, yeah. So he's head of an organisation, uh, and um, he his organisation is trying to influence people to not vote for certain parties. And the allegation now is he, he needed to authorise his statement. Well, I guess that might strictly be what the law says. Uh, I, I find this sort of, again, go back to what we just discussed in the Broadcasting um, Commission uh, stuff, that it all seems a bit absurd that he can't say that without saying this is authorised by me. As if it makes all the difference in the world, well, right? Well, how, how does it make any difference? Oh, I, I suppose, yeah. I suppose mm. it, look, I, look, does someone read that and go, well, who authorised this? Oh, that's Julian Batchelor. Oh, that's awful, okay then. That yeah. awful man who, 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 who doesn't like Maris or something, right? But, um, yeah. but anyone who, but, but the thing about the, the thing about the authorization statement is you can't see it on these usually anyway. It's buried deep in one corner in the font of about 0.5. Yeah. Because you because you want your you want your pamphlets to, you know, to say all the things you want to say, uh, uh, and your authorization should be as small or not should be, but is usually as small as possible because to make it bigger, you're using up space in your uh, advertising material. Well, well, well I've voiced so, election ads before, okay, yeah, yeah, and at the little bit at the end, authorized by you had to get through as quickly as possible, almost gabble, yeah, because <laughs> you don't want it taking up any time in the thing because they. Well, 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 well there, there we go. So that that raises a point of how significant is the authorization statement anyway, right? 
Um, exactly. So anyway, so so he hasn't. He hasn't done that. Now the Electoral Commission is investigating. But the other aspect of it, and he could be fined or something. Uh, look, at the end of the day, his pamphlets are out there now. He, he distributed them, right? So um, really, has, has, if you want to call it harm, you know, has the harm already been done anyway? Uh, but the other the other aspect of it is, uh, of course, uh, Mr. Sanjana uh, Hedotua of the... Oh, not again. The, of the Disinformation Project has, uh, has jumped into the... Um, into the fire here, uh, into, uh, into the into the fray. I suppose. Well, what's and, he been saying? Well, well, look. He, he says that um, uh, this is what he says. Um, all of it exclusively is extremely worrying. It is what you would call dangerous speech. It incites hate and it instigates harm offline. It is racist rhetoric. This is colonialism's long shadow. Oh, long so, shadow. Okay. Yeah. Now. The thing, the thing that um, when I when I saw what um, Mr. Bachelor wrote, he, uh, something about uh, one of the statements he made was something, and I haven't seen this, I haven't seen the, the brochure, but I've I've read a couple of things online uh, that that it, you know contains that, it can, that are inside it or whatever. But one of the things he says is that um, he makes the allegation that the Maori elite uh, are running New Zealand and need to be controlled or something, and there was you know consternation. Who was this Maori? elite and that don't exist and I saw Mr. Hedotua say that that in itself is disinformation because there is no Maori elite right uh, now really? um, well look the, the thing about that is, is, is a, and the legal aspect of it is that you know when when I was at law school learning contract law uh, we learned and we were taught that um, statements like that are what are called puffery They're puffery not Puffery, puffery. Yeah, they're yeah. not they're not representations of 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 fact actually existing. And another example that you know, a couple of examples, used car salesman might say, "This is the best car on my lot," or a, a real estate agent, "This is the best house in the worst street," or you know, whatever. These are just statements that are made in advertising material that no one really believes, and they're just puff, they're just puffed up and by way of marketing to make someone pay attention, basically. And so, and, and clearly, this you know, Maori elites uh, and, and whatever—that's just clearly just puffery. But the the danger is that, and, and we've talked about it before, is that these kind of puffery statements when really you look at it and go, I mean, I you know, I have I take your view of it, Paul. I mean, the who, who I actually do say, who was this Maori elite? Really, oh, I don't know. Well, maybe there's some elite that are benefiting, but I, I don't I don't take that personal that statement with much credence. It, you, for me, I need to identify them. Who are they? Name them. Where do they, you know, where do they exist? So I don't. I look at a Maori elite statement and go, oh, yeah, whatever. You're not going to be instantly triggered, necessarily. No, not at all. And and you know, and maybe maybe because I know what a what a puffery statement is when I hear it. But the danger here is that we have, you know, the disinformation project and others um, trying to cancel people's puffery statements and, and calling it, but you know, not their own. But not their own. Not because their own. a lot of that was puffery. Not their own. This is racist rhetoric. Well, really? I mean, you would you would classify that as, as puffery. This is colonialism's long shadow. Really? What is it? No, that's just a piece of, you know, adjectives, a few adjectives to make your soundbite sound really good. Yeah. Nobody's nobody's saying that Mr. Hatatua should be cancelled for making those sort of statements or, 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 or saying things that might alarm people, you know. 
Because surely if you say this is racist rhetoric, people will go, oh, bloody hell. That's, you know, but Shocking. But ordinary people, and I say 99.95% would just go, oh, whatever. You know, I uh, bet you he's never sat down like I have with Julian Batchelor and had a conversation. He doesn't even know what he's talking about, actually. I'm oh, betting. Well, I could be no, wrong, but I'm betting. He, he, won't, he won't want to because it's not his intention. His intention is to, to ban, to cancel, and to stop anything like this being said. And, and then he and, writes you know, out the invoice for saying it. Yep, and what we have to be careful uh, is, is – and look, look, this is what else uh, was said um, by him. The, the Disinformation Project has looked at what he, that Mr. Batchelor, has said, what he has printed, and what he's published. The traffic to his websites are significant signific, – uh, sorry, significant – and have shown significant month-on-month -month increase over the course of 2023. So he is influential, Pat O'Toole said. Do they get those numbers from looking themselves, or do the GCSB pass those on to them? I wonder. Well, there we go. Uh, I couldn't. I wouldn't know. And I, no, I know I you wouldn't know. know. Just putting uh, it out there. Just saying. Yeah, but my my point is that um, that they are you know the outfit like is it doesn't want him saying what he's saying and and even more importantly if he is influential because more people are going to his website now isn't that just the market at work isn't that just people saying oh, totally this totally. is this is interesting and we go back we go back to what the law society just said about uh sue gray don't we uh that um uh you know and maybe it's worth um uh, bringing that quote up again it probably is let's hear it the remedy for ill-conceived speech is more speech, not enforced silence. Right? Yeah. Uh, and yet you've got this outfit, disinformation project, uh, using their own puffery to try and silence people like Mr. Batchelor. Um, and now we've got a, you know, electoral commission complaint, uh, et cetera. So, again, you know, we talked last week and the last couple of weeks about the platform, um, not that radio channel, but the... Um, Shouldn't talk about them. Here. Media media platforms, yeah. The, the censorship on media platform that that's that's in that's in progress at the moment and done by the DIA. So, you know, um, again, we have to be very vigilant in this area, and um, it's it's a you know, keep thinking, keep thinking. I suppose of of the words that the Law Society Tribunal has just um, used uh, in the Sue Gray complaint. Well, I've seen some of the videos of Julian's uh, meetings. And there have been some quite uh, what look like scary moments from protesters, um, you know, gang members uh, hanging around, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they've got their right to do that. But you could argue that the rhetoric from that you've just been reading from you-know-who from the DIA stirs that up. And by accusing someone of being racist, you might give license to someone who thinks, okay, I'm going to go and sort this racist out. Yeah, 100%. Are they so why is someone not calling that? Well, and uh, is that inciting violence? And I think it Mr. is. Should Mr. Hadatua be investigated by the police for inciting violence? I mean, on the same measure, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, possibly. Uh, I mean, uh, again, from what I'm reading here, uh, this is the One News site, Bachelor denies he is racist, inciting hate or spreading misinformation. Well, we'll good on for denying it. He's not doing that. He's just, he, he's just um, you know, exercising his right to express a view that he has on a certain topic, uh, and he should be allowed to do that without um, a whole bunch of uh, cancellation cronies, if I can call them that.
Cancellation cronies. That's a good one. We'll, we'll, we we'll hang on to that one. Yeah, good. All right. Well, that's been a really interesting chat. Thank you, Nick, for getting us through that time. Thanks, Paul. We did, we, we did well. On the Legal Hub, and uh, we'll have Katie back next week once she's got over her big occasion. She's really hobnobbing at the moment with these presentations to big bodies overseas and hanging out with senators now, so that's really cool. She's doing God's work. She really is, and I and I miss her here today, and uh, you know, we look forward to having her back next week. Okay. In the meantime, Nick, good to uh, have you uh, back on Legal Hub again, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks, Paul. Good morning. See you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.